Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Well, back in Rwanda, it was the hardcore right-wing talk show hosts who referred to the uh, Tutsis as cockroaches. Cockroaches. We've got to exterminate the cockroaches. That's what they said on the radio over and over. And people went out with machetes, and they exterminated the cockroaches, a.k.a. the Tutsis. They murdered about a half a million people, a million people, some mind-boggling number of people that the, Hout- the Houthis massacred the Tutsis. In Germany in the 1930s, Adolf Hitler referred to the Jews as vermin, as in a pestilence, as in pests as in, you know, rats and cockroaches and things. And we all know how that one turned out. In fact, uh, the propaganda for the the Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, on November 2nd, 1939, and this was right around the time that the the Holocaust was being planned and put into place, said publicly, these are no longer humans, these are animals. No longer humans, they're animals. Turns out we are building and stocking internment camps for brown children. Children. Little kids. Imagine, remember your own childhood. You ever get sent to your room? Imagine being sent to jail. No contact with your parents, no contact with anybody except the guards, possibly other kids, or in some cases, adults. Donald Trump, in his cabinet meeting last week, you know, we've heard about how he dressed down Christian, Christian, however you say it, Nielsen, the the, uh, director of Homeland Security. And she almost quit and all this kind of stuff. She was all upset. But that was because he was yelling at her and he got all red in the face. And for a half hour, he was berating her and screaming obscenities at her, which is just something Trump does a lot. I mean, this is his management style is to humiliate people. 
presumably because he was humiliated a lot as a child, but whatever. But now he's taking it a step further. He's explicitly and openly referring to these children that we're now building internment camps for, these brown children, as animals. In fact, he used that word in his cabinet meeting. He said, these aren't people, they're animals. His exact words. And it goes beyond that. He's been traveling around the country now for a year and a half. I mean, he was doing this during his campaign. He's doing it now as president, traveling around, reading a poem. And it's a very bizarre poem. It's a poem about a snake. And the snake has, quote, pretty colored skin. Let that one sink in. And this beautiful white woman decides to save this poor frozen snake. And she leaves him home while she goes to work because she's a good working woman, a good productive member of society. And when she comes home, the snake is thawed out and she holds his pretty colored skin to her bosom. And, well, I'll let, you I'll let Donald Trump tell you the story. On her way to work one morning, down the path along the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor, half-frozen snake. Interesting. His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with the dew. Oh, well, she cried, I'll take you in, and I'll take care of you. She wrapped him up cozy in a curvature of silk and then laid him by the fireside with some honey and some milk. Now she hurried home from work, and that night, as soon as she arrived, she found that pretty snake she'd taken and revived. Now she clutched him to her bosom. You're so beautiful, she cried. But if I hadn't brought you in, by now you might have died. She stroked his pretty skin, and then she kissed and held him tight. But instead of saying thank you, that snake gave her a vicious bite. I saved you, cried the woman, and you've bit me, heavens why. You know your bite is poisonous, and now I'm going to die. Oh, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. Right. So not only are these children that Donald Trump is putting in internment camps, for-profit internment camps in some cases, not only are these children animals, Goebbels would have said vermin, the, the uh, right-wing radio hosts in Rwanda would have said cockroaches, but apparently there's snakes as well. We look back on World War II, we look back on Franklin Roosevelt taking Japanese ancestry Americans. Most of them spoke no Japanese. They'd been here multiple generations. They had nothing to do with Japan other than have, you know, having uh, had ancestors, relatives, ancestors who had come from Japan or having relatives in Japan. And he put them in internment camps. And that was horrible. And we look back on that and we say that was wrong. The Supreme Court has since ruled it was unconstitutional. At the time, the Supreme Court supported it. 
Our legislature supported it. So we look back on that and say, oh, that was a terrible thing. But the children were never separated from their families. I mean, and I'm not justifying FDR's internment camps. The point that I'm making is that we, in retrospect, at the time there were people speaking out, but we were in World War II, and, and you know, dissent was not broadly accepted. But after the war, we looked back on that and we said, that was terrible, what we did. We locked those people up because of their race. And now Donald Trump is breaking up families, is locking these children up in solitary confinement in some cases, in general populations in other cases. Kids could be insanely cruel. Again, remember your childhood? Can you imagine the Lord of the Flies kind of world that some of these children are living in? Where the older kids are threatening the younger kids or beating them up or molesting them or God knows what. I mean, kids can be, kids can just be brutal. And so can adults and so can guards. And, and they're not being supervised by social workers or childcare workers. They're in prisons children this is what we've this is what we have sunk to and you say oh you know he's talking about you know gang members and ms-13 no that's not what we're talking about at all here trump dresses it up with that but you know that's not what's going on and that's not who's coming to this country by the way ms-13 started in los angeles this is the Tom Hartman Program. Among American children. We'll be back at 16 minutes past the hour. So Donald Trump reads his snake poem and says in his cabinet meeting, these, these, these aren't people, they're animals. Gabe Ortiz is writing over at Daily Kos. Let's be honest and call Trump's proposal what it is. Internment camps for migrant kids. The Washington Post reporting, and, you know, Ellen Ratner reported on this program yesterday about this. The Trump administration is making preparations to hold immigrant children on military bases. We are lying to ourselves, Ortiz says, if we see this as anything but what it really is. Internment camps for brown children. Families are being broken as thousands of immigrant parents many with no criminal record at all, are being swept up by mass deportation agents. At the border, the cruelty is taking on a new brutality, tearing, the, the now with the tearing kids from the arms of migrant parents is official U.S. policy. Almost as disturbing, Ortiz writes, as the imprisonment of kids on military bases is the dead silence from so-called family values pro-kids Republicans. Right? I mean, you've got an entire Republican Party that, you know, sucking up to the hard Catholic right and the hard, the hard uh, uh, Protestant evangelical right who think that abortion is a, is a mortal sin and a crime and because their religion tells them that, it should be made into law. And these guys, oh, we're family values all the way. That's what we're all about. And we all know that when Republicans say family values, what they're talking about is hating gay people, hating interracial marriage, and, and, and frankly, you know, <laughs> 
well, I don't want to say hating kids, but, you know, to hell with kids. We only care about them when, you know, forced pregnancy, basically. We only care about them when they're in utero. They support these unconstitutional anti-abortion bills at the same time that they are working. And literally, as we speak right now, they are working to cut food stamps for children. The farm bill, which has been, you know, has been proposed by Republicans in the House and Senate, adds work requirements, not generally speaking, not to white people in rural areas, only on black people in urban areas, adds work requirements. You must work if you're going to get Medicaid, if you want to have health insurance, but they, but they live in places where there's no jobs. How do you find work when, when your, your black unemployment rate is 40% among, among young black people? These guys call themselves family values. They call themselves pro-life, but they are definitely not pro-child. They want to cut food stamps for children. They want to cut health care for children. Oh, my God. You know, we've got, to, we've got to preserve the billionaires' tax cuts. And, you know, if we, if we don't, you know, if we don't cut the, the funding for these children, the billionaires are going to have to see their taxes go up. We can't have that. I mean, that's the official Republican position. To hell with kids is the official Republican position. In fact, now the official Republican, uh, Republican position has morphed into, if the kids are brown, to hell with them. Throw them in prison. Take them away from their parents. I mean, we get really upset in this country when cute little white kids are taken away from their parents and put into foster care. Oh, you can't do that. I mean, you know, Louise and I started this program for abused kids in New Hampshire back in 1978, the Salem Children's Village. And, and we watched the state, and it wasn't just New Hampshire, it was every state in the union basically go through this, where, you know, there, there, were, there was a time when separating kids from their parents was acceptable. I mean, and we're talking about parents who, I mean, you know, the first kid that I did intake on, or that we did intake on, I, I, I was the administrator, um, was a girl who was the daughter of her father by her sister. The second one we took did intake on was a kid who had been tied to a pole along with his brother in his, in his parents' basement as punishment, and his brother died. And when the neighbors smelled his rotted brother, the, they called the police and they found this little kid that came to our place tied to the same pole with his dead brother. Those were the kind of situations we were encountering. And the, the position of the state back in the late 70s was take them away from their parents. Now, in most states, it's keep them with their parents no matter what, pretty much no matter what, as, as much as you can. Do everything you can to rehabilitate the families. Because we've discovered how insanely traumatic it is to separate children from their pa parents. Unless they're brown kids from Mexico or El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras. In which case, send them to prison. Ortiz writes in, in uh, Daily Codes, the fact is tearing children from their parents is child abuse. It's traumatic. Children who've been separated from their parents frequently show signs of trauma, including anxiety, depression, frequent crying, disrupted eating and sleeping, and difficulties in school. And by the way, this trauma lasts their entire lives. Kill, ch kids belong with their parents, not alone, not on military basis. What kind of nation have we become? 
that this is not around-the-clock news, asks Ortiz. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Why is our media not focusing on the brutality of this administration and Donald Trump characterizing people as snakes? Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Lori Wallach. Uh, she is the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Tradewatch.org is the website, or citizen.org slash trade. Uh, you, can t- you can tweet her at Wallach, W-A-L-L-A-C-H, Lori, L-O-R-I. And uh, Tradewatch.org, as I mentioned, is the website. Lori, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. So uh, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, the, the, the kind of the mother of all these things, the one that started it, uh, I realize it wasn't the first, but it was the, it was the big one. It was the one that the 92 election nearly turned on. Uh, Trump says he's renegotiating NAFTA to, to bring our jobs back from Mexico. What's going on? Well, against all odds, the NAFTA talks were heading towards an outcome that could have generated support from Democrats in Congress, unions, public citizen, um, NAFTA's job outsourcing incentives, and investor state dispute settlement were on their way out. And the timeline to wrap up the talks for a vote to happen this year was looming in June. Uh, The corporate lobby has been apoplectic. And even though there are a lot of trade issues unresolved, dairy market access, etc., to the horror of all these lobbyists, U.S. negotiators were actually making progress on major NAFTA changes that labor wanted and corporate America opposed. So guess what just happened today? Enter Speaker Paul Ryan and the Republican leadership. They have announced an arbitrary deadline for a final deal today that they knew could not be met. Wait a minute. Today is the announcement or today is the deadline? Today's the deadline. They basically oh announced a deadline that doesn't actually reflect the timelines established under the problematic fast track. Process. So this, this, this is really interesting. I mean, Donald Trump took this position from progressive Democrats. He, you know, in, in, in the campaign, essentially, he took this position from Bernie and, and said, you know, these trade deals have screwed our working people. Uh, we are going to change them if we don't destroy them altogether, pull out of them altogether. And people loved it. And in fact, it's arguably the thing that got him elected in the Midwestern states, and which were the states that, that uh, you know, with the Electoral College put him over Hillary Clinton. And, and he's now actually trying to keep at least parts a part of that campaign promise, kind of setting aside his, you know, getting a billion dollars from China and then helping save you know, what was it, 70,000 Chinese jobs. Um, but, but with regard to NAFTA, he's doing what progressive Democrats have been calling for since the 90s. And now the Republicans, who, who love the idea of outsourcing, they love the idea of increasing the profits of corporations in the United States at the expense of workers, uh, you know, because Republicans don't give a rat's ass about workers. Uh, the Republicans are going to blow this up. They're going to blow up their own president. Really? So <clears throat> I would say that's exactly what's going on. I mean, Ryan's willingness to literally exercise his discretion to deny his president a vote on his president's priority issue just reveals that the congressional Republicans simply will not abide any trade deal that could give working people a raise or it, remove their corporate donors' outsourcing incentives. Well, it might, also, mean, it might also reveal what, what industry Paul Ryan ten, intends to take a $5 million a year lobbying job in when he leaves, when he leaves the, uh, the Congress. Well, funny you mention that. What a convenient calling card for retiring GOP speaker yep. <laughs> to guarantee another year of NAFTA job outsourcing protections for corporate America. 
Yep. I mean, it's not so shocking, sadly, that Ryan and his Republican congressional buddies would stick it to working Americans to protect their big corporate donors. That's just, and sadly, that's not news. The fact that talks to a right NAFTA might actually help working people, though, does have a distinctly man-bites-dog sensibility, given who's president. Yeah. I mean, Trump is horrific. The, 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 the talk today where he tries to link the progressive trade agenda he stole from unions and decades of progressives and Democrats trying to change and fix NAFTA to link that to the racist, horrifying proposals he is making on, on immigration and these, these third country holding... I mean, it's just... It's, it's, yeah. this, However, the fact is Trump appropriated his trade reform agenda from progressives exactly as you said. And it doesn't matter if a president is a Democrat, a Republican, or a Martian. If he or she hopes to reduce the trade deficit, reduce job outsourcing, and the downward pressure on wages, there are just only a few things you really can do to make a difference. And then Trump appointed as his top trade official a guy named Robert Lighthizer. He's a guy who you know, progressive Senator Sherrod Brown called the best appointee in the Trump administration. Yeah, he's been a guest on this show. He's good. So he's a guy, Lighthizer, who opposed NAFTA back in 93 and said it was going to destroy American manufacturing. I mean, he's a conservative, but he also has a long commitment to American manufacturing. And the guy is furious yep. about the million jobs that even the government is certified are lost to NAFTA, including hundreds of them from his Lighthizer's hometown in Ashtabula, Ohio. So he's worked for a long time with unions and Democrats in Congress, and he really knows NAFTA inside and out. So here's a guy who's uniquely positioned to make a deal that could get broad support, and he knows what parts of NAFTA need to be changed to change the outcome, which is why here we are. The corporate lobby's unhinged, and key demands in NAFTA renegotiations of this government reflect what progressives have demanded for decades. Yeah. And shockingly, they were on the precipice, Mexico and Canada were agreeing, to get rid of investor state dispute settlements. That's been one of this Lighthizer, Lighthizer's top demands. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. So Republicans, please call your members of Congress, 202-225-3121. Lori Wallach, thank you, Lori. Thank you. Tradewatch.org is the website. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Tony in Huntsville, Alabama. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind? Tom, how you doing? I'm well. What's up? It's great to talk to you again. Look, I just want to say, man, profitability and dealing in flesh of color with the United States is not new. I mean, colored flesh is very appealing and profitable to you, the United States government and the corporations. Yep. You know, I mean, I did... That was the base. That was the economic basis of this country, Tony. Exactly. It's it's just so profitable. And and look, I did prison time in this state, Tom. You know what they do with the prisoners? They send them out to work all the land that uh, the agricultural properties that these prisons own for free. So it's a plantation system in Alabama. Yeah, we're picking tomatoes, okra, spinach, squash, and it's all free. Whoa. Oh, I'm sorry. They give us 25 cents an hour. I'm right. sorry. Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know what they fed us, Tom? Dog food. If you, if you went to any other chicken houses here, like Conag- Conagra, which is a 
big thing that Bob mm-hmm. Riley, our former governor, is, is into. They have meat that comes from there that goes to Ralston Purina, the dog food company, and it says not for human consumption. That's what they send to the prisons. Whoa. All the hearts and meat byproducts and the garbage and they print. Well, ironically, Tony, a lot of those organ meats are probably healthier for you than the muscle meat. But but I get it that, that, that they're taking basically the waste products from, uh, you know, at least in, in terms of human consumption, the waste products from the from the poultry factories and, and shipping them to the dog food factories and to the prisons. That's mind boggling. It is. And, and that's what they feed us. But now if you look at the Bureau of Prisons in Montgomery, the capital in Alabama, they show all these beautiful pictures of the great food that the prison's serving, but that's not what they're feeding the inmates. And the other thing, Tom, and I'm going to say this, and it might sound terrible, but I'm no longer a Christian. I'm, not, I'm no longer a Christian as Christianity was taught to me by white people. I'm no longer that. Because the white people that taught that to me don't even follow it themselves. So yeah. I don't know what they are, which means I don't know what they taught me. I mean, they, they, when, when I was taught Christianity from white people, fornication was bad. You know, abusing children was bad. Messing around on your wife was bad. Now they've all embraced it. It's such a good thing. Yeah, so 75% of hypocrisy. evangelicals support Trump. Yeah, so, so white evangelicals. What, what, how can I be a Christian, Tom? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I would say, Tony, I, could, I still use the word Christian to describe myself, and, and I would encourage you to. Let's take that word back and say that we are actual followers of at least Christ's teachings. Uh, you know, we don't have to, to, to believe in or follow any of the teachings of any particular church. Those are all just, you know, human-made institutions. But, uh, but Tony, I don't want to steer this off into a discussion of, of Christianity. Your, your story was poignant I, I, I get and it, powerful, and I understand that. And I appreciate I just it. I wanted to, to make the point that there, there is some rightness that must be. People have to be accountable for what they do to babies let a millstone be cast around their neck. And yeah, that was that. Yeah, exactly. That was one of Jesus's teachings: is if you you know you abuse kids, it's like a millstone gets around your neck and you get tossed into the ocean. Tony, thank you for the call. Very well said. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason: you're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X-Chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X-Chair. And the X-Chair's sleek, modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year-round. Feel and see the X-Chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, dot com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. Uh, let's see here. Dan, uh, Danny in Waco, Texas. Hey, Danny, what's up? Oh, I was just listening to you talk about how they're separating the children from their parents. Yeah. And that is something that's been done in history over and over, because with the slaves, in many cases, if they found out that you could read, they would sell you away from your family. 
your children or a woman would be sold away from her children. And then, you know, and also during the time of the intern camps and things, they would separate the parents from their children. And that that's a common thing that people do in very awful situations is to take a child away from their parents. Well, just up until so now, recently, we did this to Native Americans for hundreds of years. Yeah. So this is something that has been done over and over again to break people, yep. is to separate them from the children. And to me, if you call yourself pro-life, these things should be terrible to you, like at the end of your list. But I would just uh, say that the people who profess to be pro-life, they're not pro-life because they're not pro-child. What they are is pro-fetus. Yep. And yep. then after that, they don't care because otherwise, why would they take away SNAP who helps feed those children? And, and even at the beginning of the whole conversation, why would you separate a parent from their child in the name of trying to keep people out of the country. You know, you say that you're protecting your borders. Well, what does that have to do with you taking a child away from its parents? Because yeah. anybody who knows anything about early childhood development know that is the worst thing you can do because of what it does to that child for the rest of their life. Yep. Yep. I, and, and point in fact, look at Donald Trump sent off to boarding schools, although yeah, he had all the privileges. Yeah. But but this is this is this is far worse than that. And and, uh, you know, I think what what the Trump administration, their rationale and Trump has come out and said this, as have people in, in ICE and whatnot, is that the more brutal they get against immigrants, the less likely, in their opinion, people will come in and emigrate into this country illegally. And it's it's an extension of the logic that Israel is using right now with the with the uh, with the Palestinians in Gaza. It's like, you know, if, if, if we kill a bunch of them, then they'll stop hassling us. The more brutal we get, the more likely they are to just, you know, be broken, to back down. And the fact of the matter is, it's not working in Gaza. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not. Mm -hmm. and, and this isn't going to work. And you're just ge you're creating a generation of wounded and damaged children who are not going to remember this country favorably. And, and that's not going to be a good thing when they grow up. Danny, thank you for the call. You, you said it so very, very well. Thank you. Michelle in District Heights, Maryland. Hey, Michelle, th what's on your mind? Hey, hi. Thanks, Tom, so much for taking my call. Um, I was just calling. Thank you. I was just calling to say that I actually interpreted Trump's reading of the poem very differently than you did. I actually interpreted him reading the poem as him saying to us that he was the snake and that we knew who he was when we when he was elected as POTUS. Well, unfortunately, when he reads that poem, he always talks about the criminal gangs and the MS-13 and all this stuff, which is basically, you know, his little code for brown people. Uh, oh, no, I, I get that. I, yeah. And the, the other point I just wanted to touch on really quickly that you raised at the top of the hour um, was about the referring to humans as something other than human. And unfortunately, in this country, that has gone on since the inception of this country. When the first settlers came over here, they referred to the Native Americans as savages. Yep. And then when the slave trades took place, they referred to the Africans that they stole as savages. Yep. So that goes back way before the internment camps and before World War II and Joseph Goebbels. Yep. It, it, there's a prolific history of referring to humans as anything subhuman, which would then justify the cruelty. Yeah, and that was the, the pseudoscience that was used to justify uh, slavery, you know, the, the, the so-called inferiority of people based on simply how much pigment was in their skin. 
and Correct. and and you know analogies to to other primates and things like that. I mean that and that continues to this day in the white white supremacy movement, the white power movement, the white nationalist movement, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Absolutely, you know, they, and so I concur. 100% with you that we must, um, you know, call people on that as soon as we hear it, because we are all human people. Um, and, and as my, my minister often says, we are actual spiritual beings having a human experience and not human beings having a spiritual one. Yeah, yeah, and we need so, to recognize that. And we're all, we're all, we're all God's children, for lack That's of a better right. way of saying it. Michelle, That's I need right. to move along, but thank you thank for the call. You, you said you. it very well. Thank you. Al in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Al, what's up? I don't think there's anything new under the sun. I think we should have recognized this, Tom, uh, before the 2010 midterm elections, because you had uh, Sarah Palin uh, putting crosshairs on a map, uh, thus re resulting in the, uh, in the you know innocent children and Gabby Gifford being shot in the head. You had uh, Sharon Angle, who was uh, campaigning at the time, saying that if we can't win, that we should resort to our Second Amendment remedies. Then you had uh, Glenn Beck on Fox News who said that I believe that, referring to President Obama, that, that this president has a deep-seated hatred for white people. You know, and, and it, it's, there's nothing new under the sun. What was new is that we never made it out to vote. We convinced everybody that uh, President Obama and Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid just did not give them the right color of Lamborghini. You know, it's, it's almost like the, the, uh, we have our own little purity um, test here going on here and what we what we have to realize that we allowed our unreasonable expectations to, to result in a donald trump and before donald trump a tea party takeover no i get it there was a certain amount of the perfect being the enemy of the good but there was also you know just at the at the core of it a lot of people didn't show up to vote who damn well showed up al thanks for the thanks for the call a lot of great contributions today thank you you're listening to tom hartman Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Uh, remarkable stuff. Absolutely remarkable stuff. Stephanie Kelton is on the line with us. Boy, uh, when we get guests at the bottom of the hour, I'm, I, I'm always a little disoriented. Stephanie Kelton is the professor of public policy and economics at Stony Brook University, former chief economist to the U.S. Senate Budget Committee and advisor to Bernie Sanders in 2016. She's a founding fellow of the Sanders Institute. Stephanie Kelton, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, Kelton, K-E-L-T-O-N.com is her website. You can tweet her. At Stephanie Kelton. Stephanie, welcome back to the program. Or Dr. Kelton. Thanks, thanks Tom. Thanks for having me. So uh, you, you, this this piece uh, that you're quoted from the Atlantic, a promise so big Democrats aren't sure how to keep it about uh, guaranteed jobs. Um, how does this fit in with modern monetary theory? Well, I guess the clearest way to connect the two has always been part of the MMT kind of framework of analysis. Um, but maybe the best way to think about the way they fit together is that, um, you know, we can answer the how are you going to pay for it question. Mm -hmm. So how do we answer that? Well, you know, so MMT, and you and I have talked about this on your show a number of times before, um, you know, generally speaking, with big policy proposals like the federal job guarantee, the first question that anybody gets in Washington, D.C. is, of course, how are you going to pay for it? And that usually stops the conversation, right, because the answer usually involves some combination of um, increases in a variety of taxes where, you know, at least with divided Congress, it gets pretty difficult to see how you could ever enact legislation 
so the conversation normally doesn't get beyond just wouldn't it be nice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you could do what the Republicans just did, which is stay very focused on the goals and objectives and uh, mount support for your agenda and then just pass the legislation, the Republicans had no problem, of course, recently passing sweeping tax cuts that are estimated to add $1.5 trillion to deficits over the next 10 years. Um, so they didn't get bogged down and hung up on the pay-for question. They just said, look, this is good policy. This is their story, and they're sticking to it, right? This is good policy, and we're going to pass this thing, and it's going to create lots of jobs and growth for the economy. Now, the Democrats could come in if they manage to get control of the White House, the House, and the Senate, and put together legislation and say we're going to pass a federal job uh, guarantee and we're just going to pass the thing, and we're not going to add a bunch of tax increases and cuts and offsets and other programs because we understand that a program like this is going to cost something, right? It's going to cost an estimated, let's say, $550 billion per year as we begin to implement the program, but it's going to create a variety of savings in a whole host of other ways, all the ways in which we currently pay for unemployment and poverty and the ancillary associated economic and social costs that's going to offset much of the spending we're talking about. So you plow through the discussion without getting bogged down in, you know, whose taxes are going to go up and that sort of thing. And I think MMT gives you the space to be able to have that sort of a policy discussion. How is a guaranteed job program, which we, we actually have experience with, you know, Franklin Roosevelt did this during the Great Depression with the WPA and the CCC and other programs, uh, you know, where capitalism has failed, so government steps in and make sure you can still work and support your family and keep your family intact and all that kind of thing. How is that different from a guaranteed minimum income, which we've kind of flirted with, I suppose, with the with the uh, uh, tax credits, you know, the uh, I forget the name of it, but, you know, the tax credits that are offered to very, very low income. income tax credits. Thank you. Uh, yes. yes. Um, you know, but and, and, and arguably we kind of flirt with that with programs uh, ranging from food stamps to, to housing subsidies and whatnot. Um, it, it seems that so many of these programs, and there's, there's dozens and dozens of them, could be simply replaced with a guaranteed minimum income, and uh, it would increase efficiency at the very least in terms of distribution of, of resources to people. Um, a, I'm curious your thoughts on that, uh, the universal basic income, and B, how, how is that different from or complementary to or even in contrast with the idea of guaranteed jobs? So, so you're right. A lot of people will talk about something, and you said it at the very end. It's not the same as expanding the earned income tax credit, right? A universal basic income, if it means what people really intend it to mean, I guess, which is that it's universal. That means you get it, I get it, Oprah gets it, Bill Gates gets it, everybody gets it, you get a check, and you get a check, right? It's Just like Social Security. Everybody. What's that? Just like Social Security. Well, but Social Security, well, okay, so it's like Social Security once you reach eligibility. Right, but I mean, so, Bill Gates can get Social Security just like I can. Yeah, so, so. what happens sometimes, there's so many different uh, proposals for a universal basic income. It's often hard for me to comment because I don't know what somebody has in mind. Some people say that kids should get paid. Mm-hmm. Maybe every child gets 6000 every adult gets 12000 every year. They do that you in Alaska, where- don't they? What's that? Don't they do that in Alaska with the, I'm sorry, you can't hear me. Uh, don't they do that in Alaska with the uh, uh, Alaska Permanent Fund? Every well, child? Well, but it's not a living, so this again comes back to one of these problems. When you have these discussions with people who propose a universal basic income, if it's truly a basic income, it's supposed to be enough for a person to survive on. It's supposed right. to be enough to 
do meet your basic needs. Of course, that's not what happens in Alaska. The Alaska dividend could be twelve hundred and fifty bucks one year. It could be seventeen hundred another year. It could be twenty one hundred one year. It goes up, but it also goes down. It's not uniform, and so that's normally not what people think of when they think of a universal basic income. It's a standardized payment that goes to everybody, right? The those right. at the very top, those at the very bottom, and everybody in between. Well, I have a number of concerns, and I have for a long time. Uh, with the UBI as compared to a federal job guarantee program. The job guarantee program is targeted, right? It is saying, look, if you want employment, if you want to work, if you want to contribute, you can't find anybody to employ you. Nobody in the private sector, there's no public sector job. You want to work, but you can't find a job. Then what the job guarantee does is provide a public option in the labor market. Anybody who wants to work and can't find work anywhere else in the economy can come take a job in the public service employment program. So it's targeted. It also moves with the business cycle. So in a weak economy, the program automatically scales up. You absorb people who are losing their jobs in an economic downturn. But as the economy improves, the program automatically shrinks in size, and so you end up spending less. So it is what we call a counter-cyclical program. And so it has stabilizing effects for the overall economy. In contrast, the universal basic income is sending out the same standardized payment at all points in the business cycle. So when the economy is really booming and things are heating up, maybe you're getting some inflationary pressure, labor markets are very tight, people are still being sent the same standardized check. And we think one of the potential risks in doing that is that you have no way of controlling inflation in in a scheme like that. Hmm. Um, The other thing is, that, you know, what often happens is people say, let's replace this huge bureaucratic welfare system that we have, and let's just simplify. You mentioned efficiency. We'll just make it more efficient. We'll send everybody a check, and you figure out how to save for your retirement. You figure out how to plan for your health care. You figure out, so all of these other programs that you mentioned, like food stamps and Section 8 housing vouchers, all these other programs that are there today to help protect and safeguard people from unemployment compensation, from uh, homelessness, whatever, hunger, and so forth, those programs are gone because they're being used to, quote, pay for the universal basic income. So now you've eliminated the social safety net, replaced it with a single program, right, Uh, a program that some people might characterize as a a free money program, and um, the people at the very top are going to take their basic income check and say thank you very much and buy shares of Apple or whatever the case may be, their wealth is going to automatically increase. And we're, create, we're subsidizing that increased wealth for people at the top who don't need that additional income to survive. People at the bottom are going to consume every bit of the income that they receive. So they're going to, I think the risk, another risk is exacerbating uh, inequality, particularly wealth inequality. So it, it sounds like you're not a fan of universal basic income, and I get it, and, I, and, and it makes perfect sense why. And, but the job guarantee, because it's countercyclical, it, if we're going to stay with a relatively unregulated capitalist system, uh, particularly when it comes to things like mergers and acquisitions, you know, Reagan in 82 stopping the enforcement of the Sherman Act, so that we have even more exaggerated swings in our economy because, you know, it's so highly uh, verticalized that we really need to do this with a jobs program, a guaranteed jobs program. Well, I think... I we have one minute left, idea, by the way. I hate, kind of hate the idea of saying, let's accept all of these other things that, you know, these changes uh, to tax laws, trade, and everything else that we've done, and let's just provide 
a universal job guarantee because we have this really messed up economic system that is right. constantly going to be throwing right. No, I'm, so, I'm, I'm I, not. I'm not saying that. Please. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, so, but it is true. It is true that we have an economic system that is um, prone to crisis. This is goes back to Keynes of the general theory and even beyond. Right. Yep. Go back to Marx. We have an economic system that is crisis that is crisis prone. And we should be doing much more in terms of um, changing laws and regulatory policy, trade, and so forth, to limit the degree to which our economy is unstable. We're never going to perfectly have, you're not going to have a capitalist economy that can go through business cycles, right? Yeah. Yep. And- Stephanie, we're hitting the break here. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I really appreciate this conversation. It's, it's, uh, oh, sure. You've helped recalibrate my thinking, which I really appreciate. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Kelton. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Stephanie Kelton, You're hang on a second. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. The website is StephanieKelton.com, and you can tweet her at Stephanie Kelton. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, let me get to it here. On the line with us is Congressman Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison is the uh, deputy director of the DNC. He represents the 5th District of Minnesota. Ellison.house.gov and Democrats.org are the websites, and you can tweet him at Keith Ellison. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's good to be back with you, Tom. Good to be back, man. How are you? It, I'm great, and I, and I hope you are, too. Uh, you've got this uh, new report that you just unveiled titled Rewarding or hoarding. I love the word hoarding. I've been talking for years on this program about how these billionaires who never have enough, right? They, 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 they go from right. 5 billion to 10 billion to 30 billion to 50 billion, and that they are the exact same people psychologically who are, uh, who, who are the people in, in New York City who end up with an apartment filled with newspapers and old tin cans that you can't walk through or, or 300 cats. The only difference is that they were born with millions of dollars, and which they turned into billions. They're hoarding cash, and the, and the poorer people are hoarding newspapers and tin cans. But it's the exact same version of obsessive-compulsive disorder uh, channeled into a, what's called hoarding syndrome. Back to you, Congressman. Well, you know what? Uh, in, among my staff, we debated this issue of using the title rewarding, rewarding or hoarding. And, and I kind of felt that hoarding is how I sort of understand what's going on. They are literally... Can't retaining as much and acquiring as much as they can without regard to their shareholders, without regard to market competitiveness, without regard to consumers, without regard to workers, without regard to the environment. What else do you call what they're doing is hoarding, particularly when you look at some of the data? Because the issue of CEOs getting exorbitant unearned money uh, is not new. Um, but what is new is that in the Dodd-Frank bill, the Dodd-Frank bill, it, one of the provisions in it was to have that was that corporations had to report the CEO pay ratio, and it took five years for the Securities Exchange Commission to write a rule to get it, but they did get it, and the first data set just recently came out. My staff, who are awesome, crunched the numbers, and we looked over it, and we reviewed it, and read it, and we came up with this report, which you have a copy of. And you know, the top the top uh, company. They don't get 339 to 1. That's just the median. The top CEO pay ratio is Mattel, and their CEO gets 4,987 uh, to 1. So what, what the CEO gets, that's, that's equal to the pay of 4,000, nearly 5,000 people, right? Wow. McDonald's, McDonald's, 
their CEO pay ratio is 3100 So the average worker pays about $7,000. The CEO gets $21 million. Now, you might think, well, see, here's the other thing about it, Tom. If you look at the median worker pay, many of them are down 6000 7000 5000 24000 3000 all these really low numbers. And somebody said, well, not all these people work, but many of them will, will, will work part-time. Well, not by choice, right? I mean, right. These are strategic part-time workers. They hold people below a certain number of hours per week so that they can avoid paying them benefits, right? So it, the, that, that's no answer. A lot of these CEOs have said, well, we have a lot of part-time people. Yeah, and they'd like to be full-time, but you force them into two and three uh, jobs that are basically half-time, all at $7.25 an hour. The gap, by the way, 2900 The CEO gets... Uh, for the CEO gets was equal to twenty nine uh, hundred workers workers, the, which is the C, CEO pay ratio. Um, you know uh, the 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 pay ratio between the CEO and the average worker pay for Yum China Holdings is twenty eight uh, eighteen twenty eight hundred. So we to get down to like the number we hear a lot, which is in the three hundreds or so, you got to go way down the list. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot who do way worse than that. CBS, by the way. They're, they're the, the, the average CEO makes 595 times the average worker. Wow. Um, Wyndham Worldwide, the average CEO, the, the CEO gets, uh, gets 398 times the average worker. So the thing is, is that to look at this as, a media, as medians obscures the fact that some workers get paid extremely low, some workers pay, and some uh, CEOs get rewarded extremely high, and it's not just the workers that suffer, it's the shareholder. It's the, uh, the, the small companies trying to break into the business. Why is that? Because they use all this exorbitant money to buy political influence and to do mergers, right? right. So when they're doing all these mergers, uh, you don't need to marketing departments. You don't need to, um, you know, uh, HR departments. You just get rid of a lot of people uh, when, you do, when these mergers happen. And then what do you do? Uh, you create a market where you have basically one, two, three, or four employers that's called a monopsony, not a monopoly, but a monopsony where there's one buyer of labor, and you can pay them what you want to pay them because where they're going to go. So this this issue of inequality is way more serious than simply one person getting put, paid a whole lot and somebody else getting paid not very much. It and is damaging our entire society. Certainly, it's threatening to our democracy. I agree. And let's put this in context. Uh, a lot of people listening are not. Uh, old enough, and 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 I'm not even sure if you are, um, but I am. I'm you know the, the official old fart here. Uh, you know I remember growing up in the '60s and '70s, and I remember running businesses in the '70s. In fact, I remember in 1972 or 73, I owned a business in Michigan, in Lansing, Michigan, where my my accountant came to me and said, "You need to reduce your paycheck." Now I, we're talking about a paycheck that back in '72 or '73 was like I was hitting like fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year, which you could probably add. A zero to that for its impact, you know, today. But you know, he said you're reaching the point where you're going to start paying 40, 45 percent of your paycheck as taxes, and that's crazy. He said you should reinvest that money in your company. And the fact of the matter is that prior to the Reagan tax cuts in the 1980s, the average CEO in the United States only earned 30 times what their average worker did, and they did that right. because once you hit 31 times what your average worker was making, you, you started paying such absurd taxes that it was like, why bother? Let's put the money back into the company and grow the company, which is exactly what I did with that company. And and yeah. we have just lost all sense of proportion and balance in our economy. And I put it all at the feet of the tax cuts. I don't, what, what are your thoughts on, on the genesis well, of this and the solutions to this? 
Well, let me just agree with you that solving this problem does start with our tax code. And this last uh, round of massive giveaways didn't help. We know that 83% of the tax cut benefits uh, will go to the top 1%. We know that. Uh, and so, but I'd say you're right. We've got to raise the marginal tax rate so that it makes sense just to plow the money back into the company rather than just hoard it. The other thing we have to do is we've got to make uh, stock buybacks illegal. You know, they used to be. Yep. Uh, that was prior to Reagan also. It. Yeah. You, you know, and we also need to um, do other things like uh, pass laws that help strengthen workers' voice on the job. Yep. Because it is the, uh, dis- that is the way the bargaining, uh, the bargaining power has shifted away from workers toward capital that also explains this problem. And we also need to work on campaign finance because, as I said before, with all this money, I mean, how do you get all these massive IE expenditures? Where does all this money come from to you just plop it into politics like this? Yeah. Well, it's because of, it's because of the, uh, the inequality. So, like, you and I both know, because you, you work in politics, I work directly in politics. Most people you meet cannot write you a max out, max out check. Most people, I mean, and a max out check for, for congressman is $2,700. Right. But... There are people who can write max out checks to a president. How many people is that? That is a precious few people. That's a tiny number of people. And you show me those people, these people are CEOs, are related to CEOs, and they're the ones who make these giant campaign expenditures where they spend money to attack a a campaign idea they don't like or a candidate, or they reward the ones they do like. You all know that when the – don't you remember when in the last Republican uh, presidential – you saw Marco Rubio and Cruz and all these guys beating the path to the likes of the Koch brothers as more Mr. Sheldon Adelson or, or somebody like that, or the Mercers. Right. You know, they beat the path to these people. And if we had, you know, fair taxation, they would, those guys wouldn't be able to amass those dramatic fortunes that essentially allow them to corrupt our politics. And, and speaking of the corruption of our politics, back two, three years ago, uh, two professors at Northwestern University, Gillens and Page, oversaw a study... Uh, that, that you know was sort of a, uh, a one-week wonder in the news cycle, but I think is a huge big deal, which pointed out that the political desires of the top right. 1% have a really high probability of being made into law, something like 70, 80, 90%. Yep. The political desires yep. of the top 10% have an over 50% chance of being made into law, and the political desires of the bottom 90% there is no measurable relationship whatsoever between what the bottom 90% want and what gets made into law. It's, ra- it's statistically equivalent to random noise. The bottom 90% are completely ignored, specifically because of what you're talking about. Only the top 10% yep. can afford to, fi- to finance political campaigns since, we, since the Supreme Court in 76 blew up all those campaign, uh, uh, you know, clean up the campaign stuff that Congress passed in 74 uh, and 75 in the wake of the Nixon scandals. That's right. Well, well, so so basically, what you're saying is because of the concentration of wealth, they have concentrated political power yep. and have essentially subverted democracy. I mean, you can vote if you want to, but you know they tell people that it doesn't matter. But I want to tell you on this phone, democracy still does matter. We need everybody to get out there and vote who possibly can. In fact, we got to fight the cynicism, and we, because we've got to reclaim our democracy. But we can't just think it's all about voting. We got to also march. We got to also call into shows like yours. We also got a podcast, and we got to tweet, and we got to get out there and be active. But I guess the story is that look, um, you know, we have some you know generational challenges facing us, 
And this concentration of economic and political power is, is perhaps the most serious thing threatening us today. I, I read uh, what you, you were reading a very interesting piece when I was waiting in the queue, and you said the problem of climate change is not really a scientific problem. It is a cultural problem. It is a problem of how we think. Well, part of what governs how we think is the fact that the people who, who can hoard all this money, they figure, I mean, one of them, Elon Musk isn't uh, one of them. I mean, maybe I got it wrong. He's a, some other billionaire. is talking about building a space station that only him and other rich people can live on. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so that's their solution to like climate change. You know, they're like, we'll just create something. We'll be, all y'all got to live down there in the, in the floods and the heat. And the, and, well, and they're, the converting, they're converting used missile, missile silos in the Midwest into uh, you know, $500 million bunkers for rich people. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing. So, Congressman, right. the, the bottom line here is that the, the value system of the Democratic Party is, is that we need, to, we need to strengthen the middle class and working people, and we need to regulate the excesses and the greed of, of, our, of our economic system, as we have in the past when, when this country has really done the very best. And the value system of the Republican Party is whatever the billionaires want, the billionaires get, and because the billionaires write the checks that keep us going. And people need to get out there and vote Democratic. Is that the bottom line? <laughs> That's the bottom line, but if I can add one little more thing. Sure, we what got 30 seconds. Party, what the Democratic Party says it is and what it really is all depends upon the level of engagement that we can get. Cynicism is bigger enemy than Trump ever was. Yep. We've got to have people involved. We've got to have people being a part of this thing, shaping this thing. If you go sit on the sideline because you think it's all sucks and it's all wrapped up, then you have just helped the oligarchs. So don't do that. Get involved. Get out there. Organize. Yep. Tag, you're it. <laughs> it's time. We, we, we can't afford to be, to be uh, just sitting back and, 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 you know, and complaining isn't enough. It's one of the reasons I try not to no. complain so much on this show. Compl you know, we've got to get active. Thank you. Congressman Keith Ellison, you know, one of the really great guys uh, representing the 5th District of Minnesota, of course, but he's also the deputy director of the DNC, ellison.house.org, and, uh, and uh, excuse me, .gov, and uh, democrats.org. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. Bye-bye, buddy. It's always a, a pleasure to talk to you. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Ray in McHenry, Illinois. Hey, Ray, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. I just wanted to bring it to focus and highlight for everyone what I see unfolding every day on TV as Trump's strategy to avoid getting kicked out of office. First, they're proceeding on the precedent that uh, sitting president can't be indicted. Giuliani said that just recently on, on publicly on TV. Right. Well, the Department and of Justice said that back in 1974. Yeah. yeah. And then he's, they're producing this daily TV series whose message and theme seems to be, I'm such a good leader doing such a great job that the country can't risk losing me. Yep. Every day his face is on TV with some event which portrays him working hard, keeping his promises that he made, even though much of what he says is either a lie or half-truth at best. And just like they did during the campaign, the media is covering every moment of it. Yep. And I'm afraid it's going to help him get, just like it helped him get elected when he never should have been, it's going to help him avoid impeachment, even if Mueller comes up with a great case. I agree. I, I think the probability of Donald Trump being impeached is zero. Unless, yeah. unless in, you know, uh, uh, what's, what's the old saying, you know, a, uh, uh, a, uh, a live boy or a dead hooker, you know, in, in their bed. Uh, I, it's just, I, I, I just, it's going to take a really shocking crime to uh, to produce an impeachment. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Ray, thanks for the call. Nora in Seattle. Hey, Nora, what's up? Hey, I was thinking about you when I was at Roosevelt Island at Four Freedoms Park a few weeks ago. Oh, my. Um, 
Have you ever been there? I am not sure. Louise and I walked all around Roosevelt's Island some about five, six years ago, but I don't recall whether we saw mm. the park or not. Well, at the very point of the park across from the U.N. is Four Freedoms Park, which is a memorial to Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And it has his uh, statement about the Four Freedoms on it. Um, but I'm calling with my list of rights, uh, and they include, they start with Medicare for all, but go on to voting rights for all, yep. justice for all, jobs for all, guaranteed income for all, clean air, land, and water for all, lifetime learning for all, that's my favorite, good food for all, good shelter for all, peace for all, equality for all. Reparations for Native people and descendants of slaves, safety and security for all, and patriotism for all. Wow, I love that list. Uh, you know, you should post that to our Facebook page. That's a good one. That's a really I'd good love one. To. Yeah. I hope it becomes a democratic platform. I do too, and and large parts of it already are. But uh, that's a that's one of the most comprehensive lists I've heard. Uh, thank you very much for that, Nora. I appreciate the call. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's on your mind? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Yeah. Good. We just have 40 seconds, Maine, so get to it quick. Okay, you want to, uh, I would add, uh, pay student athletes, uh, the, the, the most exploited uh, people in, uh, uh, in America is, is the student athlete. Uh, oh, now I'm in a panic. You want to uh, talk about democratizing capitalism? Yeah, democratizing capitalism. Yeah, th these, are the, uh, these are the things that, uh, uh, when you uh, democratizing capitalism, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm stuck. That's okay. It's, it's a good idea to turn the radio off because it can be disorienting. Maine, thanks for the call. Wow, what a day. And uh, Donald Trump is talking trade right now. Uh, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. What can I say? Anyhow, we'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget democracy, as Keith Ellison was pointing out. I mean, you know, what was his main solution to most of these problems? Get engaged. You know, when, when, when you know, fewer than 30% of our young people are voting, we've got a problem. Uh, when fewer, when, when you know, fewer than 60% of all people are voting, we've got a problem. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.